Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We start with the great plastics debate on the show today. The federal government taking more steps now to ban single-use plastic items in Canada. Straws, takeout containers, grocery bags, plastic cutlery, stir sticks, six-pack rings. They are all on the banned list. Will this make a difference in improving the environment and stopping pollution in our oceans? Let's discuss it now. We got both sides of it for you. David Clement, Public Affairs Manager, Consumer Choice Center. Hey, David, thanks for coming on again. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you bet. Also on the line is Karen Worsig. Karen is the Program Manager at Environmental Defense. Hi, Karen. Good morning. Okay, thank you to both of you for being here today and agreeing to go on together. Karen, let me speak to you first. The plastics ban, you support it? Does it go far enough in your opinion? We certainly support it. Uh, will it go, go far enough to get to the goal of zero plastic waste by 2030? No. So it's a start, and we're going to need to see a lot more action on banning plastics and requiring reuse and refill to get to 2030. What more needs to be done? Like, what would be at the top of your to-do list? Well, I think expanding the bans to additional items that are very uh, widely used, but also widely littered and not recyclable. We we asked the government to add hot and cold drink cups to the initial list of the banned items. And unfortunately, that hasn't happened. But it's something, you know, systematically people find them in beach cleanups and in litter pickups, and they really need to go. Okay, the government not ruling out expanding this banned list. David Clement, Consumer Choice Center. David, I know you're a bit dubious on this, right? Tell me why. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that this uh, this is appropriate for the most part because it drives consumers to alternatives that are worse for the environment um, on a whole. Uh, if you look at the life cycle analysis for something like the alternatives to a, a plastic grocery bag, you have to reuse a paper bag 43 times for it to be as environmentally conscious as a single-use plastic bag. And that's just because of what is required to make it. And, I mean, I, I, I can speak for myself, but I can probably speak for listeners. There's no world where reusing a, a paper bag 43 times is even remotely possible. Mine barely make it to the trunk of my car most times. And how could how course, could a how could a paper bag though be worse for the environment than a plastic bag? I mean, that just doesn't seem to make sense on the surface when you consider that, you know, how long would it take for a plastic bag to decompose in a landfill compared to a paper bag? That's a very good question. It's a very good question. I think the the premise there that it has to end up in a landfill is it's 
is um, common, but it's incorrect. None of this plastic needs to end up um, being littered or ending up in the landfill. Virtually all plastics can be depolymized in some way and turned into things like resin pellets and uh, a variety of other products that extend the life cycle almost infinitively. Yeah, what do you say, Karen? Um, what do you, Karen? Let me get Karen in the conversation here. Yeah. Karen, what do you say to that? I, I believe David's talking about recycling, and yeah. we've had forty years of experience of recycling of plastics. It's never worked. We've never in North America gotten above about eight percent recycling, and that's probably an overestimate of how much plastic is recycled, since so much of the count involved shipping stuff away. Uh, to China or other countries with a wish that it would be recycled, but it probably wasn't. Yeah. So most most plastic polymers are very difficult to recycle, and uh, we're using more and more and more plastics that don't get captured in any kind of recycling program. I think the paper bag question is a bit of a it, yeah. it's a red herring. We don't support just replacing all plastic with single use paper. But I will say, if you do happen to use a paper bag and it blows away into nature, it will decompose quite safely uh, and not strangle a fish or, you know, be eaten by a whale. Okay, speaking of strangling fish and whales consuming plastic and that kind of thing, people have seen photos of sea turtles with plastic straws stuck in them and, and stuff like that. David, let me ask you about that. How accurate a picture is that? Like, I'm just, everyone has seen the pictures of these plastic oceans floating out, plastic islands sort of floating out in the ocean. How much of that plastic comes from Canada, or does it come from other countries with less stringent rules than ours? Less than 0.1% would come from Canada. I mean, that would maybe be an overestimate. Um, The majority of the plastic waste in the ocean, which is certainly a problem, comes from bad fishing practices. Uh, and the majority of plastic waste um, that that enters um, the ocean from waterways comes from ten rivers, mostly in the developed uh, developing world. We're looking at countries like India, China, etc. And so, in terms of the actual plastic um, choking off um, animals in the water, our ban will do virtually nothing to stop that because it's the developed world. And what's interesting is this liberal government that's pushing. This plastic ban has also voted against uh, a proposition that would ban the export of plastic waste because we have a very nasty habit of sending our plastic waste to other countries whom we know uh, don't dispose of it properly and it ends up in in rivers. And so this feels a lot like symbolism. Uh, It feels like a policy that when you read the headlines, it's going to make a difference. But I think when push comes to shove, it's absolutely not going to. Karen, what do you say to the... Well, I can tell you that there's a higher concentration of plastic pollution in the Great Lakes than in any of those uh, ocean patches of plastic waste. So plastic pollution is clearly not just a so-called third world problem, a developing world problem. We produce more plastic in this country than we even use, and we throw away among the highest rate of plastic per capita in the world. So we are definitely part of the problem. Sure, more of our waste ends up in landfill, obviously, than in nature directly. But if we if we cut down, and we will be now with these bans, cut down on our single plastics use, we will be contributing to declining amounts of plastic waste right. in the rivers and lakes. Talking yeah, about Canada, so, go ahead, David. I was just going to say, I feel like um, I feel like we're playing a little bit of a game of hide the ball here because if we 
if we look at the the comment that recycling is, is not feasible or not possible, that depends on how we're evaluating that. If we look at depolymerizing plastic, which is essentially reducing it down um, to its basic chemistry, there are folks all across Canada and in, in Alberta in specific who are taking all of these problematic plastics, turning them into resin pellets, tiles for your home, all sorts of other innovative solutions that solve this problem that divert plastic from landfills and the environment that don't force us to use environmentally harmful alternatives that are also more expensive. Yeah, I want to get into the expense here for sure, but let's fit a break in here right now and we'll come back. We'll talk about that. I'm interested to know about the cost for consumers and business here with this ban. Maybe the ban widens in the future. Karen Wersig, Environmental Defense, David Clement, Consumer Choice Center are my guests. We're talking about the single-use plastic ban in Canada. Do you have a comment or a question about banning plastics in Canada? We're debating the plastics ban in Canada. Karen Worsig, David Clement. Hey, David, just before we take a few phone calls here, pick up on that issue around the cost here. So what kind of impact will this ban have on business and consumers? Yeah, so if you look at bags, the alternative for bags are about 2.5 times more expensive. For cutlery, it's about 2.2 times more expensive. And for straws, it's around three times more expensive. And these are the government's. Uh, own figures uh, when they put out the draft regulations. And so that's obviously going to have an impact on on where those costs are passed on to consumers. Arguably, they're going to be passed on to consumers through increased prices. People are already dealing with all sorts of inflationary pressures across the board, but in particular food. Um, And so you do have to grapple with the fact that it's going to make those things more expensive and make the end price more expensive. Karen, what do you say to those concerns? Is this something that Canadian consumers and business will just have to suck up and just say, yeah, okay, it's going to be more expensive, but, you know, that's the price we have to pay? We'd like to see businesses moving to reusables instead of just other single-use garbage made from other kinds of materials. And I think ultimately what we've seen studies have found is that reuse, there is a bit of an upfront cost, but it pays back over time because you're not having to buy, you know, single-use packaging all the time that you're giving out to people. So I think there are other solutions that ultimately will lead to not only lower cost, lower cost to consumers and to the environment, but also more jobs. Because when you get rid of single-use garbage, you basically turn that garbage into jobs. Okay, let's take some phone calls here and see what people think. Corey on the line in North Vancouver. Hi, Corey, go ahead. Hey, I think it's a, I think it's a great idea. Uh, should have done it about 20 years ago. Um, the, the amount of, of plastic waste that we have, just it's just absolutely ridiculous. Like, there's no reason for it. So, um, yeah, I think this is a good initiative, but I think it's about, uh, I think it's about 20 years overdue. So, okay, Corey, thank you for the call. David, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, I also uh, don't like the idea of plastic waste ending up in our waterways. Um, and, and essentially, this is a littering bill, but rather than dealing with littering, we're dealing with production. Um, and the thing is that there are exemptions written into these laws that just, um, in order to for something not to be single use, you just increase the amount of resin used on the bag so long as it can carry. And I mean, it sounds like it's from a Monty Python skip, but these are the actual rules. If it can, if a plastic bag can carry 10 kilograms, 53 meters 
a uh, hundred times, then it's no longer single use. How do you do that? You increase the amount of resin in the plastic. Does that increase or decrease the amount of plastic we use overall? Well, it increases it. And so we've created oh. a system that we're, we're, we're discouraging folks from using what may be counterintuitive, but is the environmentally advantageous option. And what are we doing? We're pushing okay. them to alternatives like paper and cloth, which are worse, or products that have more plastic, which I think everyone can scratch their heads at. Okay. I, Karen, I know you want to respond to that, but let me just quick, in a, just in the interest of time, get another call in. Sean in Chilliwack. Hi, Sean. Go ahead. Hi there. I just want to say I think this uh, single-use uh, plastic ban is foolish, and I think the people that are making the decisions have never made plastic and don't know what actually goes into making it. Um, the actual reusing and breaking down of plastic to recycle it uses a lot more energy. There's a washing cost. There's new additives you need to put in with those resins. Uh, recycling can be very expensive, and that's one of the things that's held back the industry for 20-some-odd years. I don't like plastic. Nobody likes plastics in the waterway. But we haven't educated the consumer on how to deal with their garbage and recycling appropriately. Um, there are many different types of plastics that are out there. Some are recyclable. Some aren't. I think the burden needs to be put back onto the manufacturers, onto the companies that are putting a lot of this waste in there, everything from the shrink wrap that goes around their pallets, the plastic pallets, the banding, the boxes, the plastic bags that the manufacturing goods come in from. There is more manufacturing waste than there is single-use plastics. They're punishing okay. the, uh, the consumer for their own financial gain. 15 cents in Chilliwack for a paper bag is ridiculous. Karen Worsey, what do you say to him? Well, I think there's no question that the single-use plastic bans are just just have to be the start, and really companies and business-to-business things like uh, you know the packing um, and all those other manufacturing applications really do have to change as well. I have n- no quarrel with that at all. I think what's important about just you know we're naming now these six items are harmful products that are unnecessary and can be replaced with something else, and it's that's a good message. We need to get used to going without those products. We do not need to replace them with other single-use products. We need to get in the habit of reusing bags, you know, thousands of times and, and carrying a small bag in our pocket if we, in case we need one. Um, we need to get in the habit of reusing coffee cups and washing them out or, you know, co- really companies need to get in the habit of offering us reusable cups that they wash out and, and um, sure. get back from us. So this- really... This, this will change, you know, lots of behavior, which is going to be helpful. Squeeze in one more call. Cindy in Vancouver. Hi, Cindy. If you could go quickly, please. Go ahead. For sure. Thanks, Mike. Uh, there are better alternatives, and one in particular to the single-use checkout bag, and it's certified compostable film products. They are what goes into the organics bin liner now. People can go buy their groceries in a, single, sorry, in a certified compostable uh, film product, take it home, put the organics in it, put it into the compost, and it gets composted where compost facilities are available. And this company, and there are others, but in particular, BC-based, EcoSafe, Zero Waste, they're already doing it. It's out in the market. Okay, Cindy, thank you for the call. You got the last word today as we run out of time, but I want to thank our guests for a good discussion here. Karen Wersig from Environmental Defense. Thank you, Karen. David Clement from the Consumer Choice Centre. Thank you, David.
Let's talk about the growing popularity of e-scooters now. Everyone has seen these on our roads, our sidewalks. They're now becoming more and more popular. Those stand-up kick scooters, they run on an electric engine, and these things can fly. Just this weekend, I saw a guy zooming down the sidewalk in Burnaby. I was like, whoa. I would, I hope no pedestrian happens to step out of their, their pathway or their driveway or something and run into this guy. He was just booking it down the sidewalk. You are not allowed to do that. All right. There are several municipalities that have allowed e-scooters here under a pilot project, but you can't ride on the sidewalk. But still, you still see it though. Now check this out. Sergeant Steve Addison, he was a guest on yesterday's show, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. And he says, yeah, they're getting more complaints from pedestrians and motorists about e-scooters. I asked him how the police deal with these complaints. Here's what he had to say. Have a listen. Um, yeah, they do tend to lead to um, uh, some conflicts, and we try to mitigate those conflicts um, as as they arise. Uh, educating them, um, because a lot of people don't know what the rules are, educating them about the rules really goes a long way. Certainly if there's cases where people are being reckless, um, egregious, disrespectful to people, uh, we we can and we will issue fines. Yeah, there could be like a $100 fine if you get caught booking it on an e-scooter on the sidewalk. That is definitely not allowed. Where can these e-scooters be used around Metro Vancouver? Well, in Vancouver, they're allowed. A half dozen other BC cities have also permitted electric scooters to use bike paths and local roads. It's part of a trial project. One of the municipalities on board here, the District of North Vancouver. Let's discuss now with my guest, Councillor Jordan Back from the District of North Van, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. Nice to join uh, you. Yeah, it's nice to have you back. So you you support the e-scooter project in North Van, correct? I do support it. Uh, the majority of our council, well, in fact, I think our, it was unanimous support from our council to support uh, being part of the provincial pilot program that runs until April 2024. Um, I think the more options we can give people to travel and get around uh, outside of the, the private automobile, the better. Okay, let's talk about the rules here. Where are you allowed to ride them? So as, uh, as part of the pilot project, uh, we are working with the other North Shore municipalities, so the City of North Vancouver and the District of West Vancouver. Um, we allow them on local collector roads where the speed limit is 50K or, or less. Uh, we allow them right. in designated bike lanes and on some paved uh, multi-use paths. Okay, definitely not on the sidewalk. Definitely not on the sidewalk, right. uh, not on arterial roads if there are uh, no bike lanes, uh, not on unpaved trails, uh, or in any of our kind of public plazas and, and other public open spaces like that. Are many e-scooter riders flouting the rules and riding on the sidewalk or on these major roads anyway, to your knowledge? Have you received any complaints or uh, reports of that? So I, I didn't have a chance uh, in advance of this interview to get a, an update on the number of complaints. Um, I can certainly follow up with that. Um, but anecdotally, yeah. for sure, we, we see people uh, breaking the rules. Um, and hearing um, from, from the Vancouver uh, Police Department there, I, I think it is about educating people. This, this is a relatively new space. Uh, we only approved this pilot project uh, this spring, earlier this spring. So I think it's going to take some time to kind of let people know 
what those rules are, where they're allowed to ride them. And I think generally speaking, you know, people are going to uh, follow those rules. Um, but as part of this uh, pilot project and participating in it, we're going to be reporting annually uh, to the province on, on some of the impacts that we're seeing to our roads and to the community and, and things like incidents and, and injuries that, yeah. that may happen. What is the penalty for breaking the rules? Can police issue a ticket under a bylaw there in the District of North Vancouver? So enforcement uh, of the e-scooter regulations primarily falls under the Motor Vehicle Act. So yes, it is up to the police primarily in, in our municipality, the RCMP, to, uh, to enforce. Yeah. yeah. Right. And how much is the fine, do you know? Uh, I, I don't have that number off the top of my head, no. Okay. Have you ever ridden one of these yourself? You ever tried one out? I have tried one. Um, uh, I, I don't have one myself. As we've talked about e-bikes in the past, I have an e-bike, yeah. and that generally serves my needs for getting around um, when I'm not uh, you know, in a vehicle or, or taking public transportation. But um, I think the e-scooters do you know, fill a need for a lot of people. Um, they, they do allow you to get around you know, qu- quite easily um, yeah. and, and you know, um, fairly safe, uh, primary, you know, provided you're using them in the right areas and uh, you're wearing a helmet and all of those kinds of things. Speaking to District of North Vancouver Councillor Jordan Back, also on yesterday's show, I spoke to Bradley Spence. He's from the EV's Skate Shop in Vancouver. It's one of the busiest stores in the city that is selling electric scooters. He says these things are flying off his shelves. He cannot keep them in stock. They are so popular. And he says, hey, look, these things are here to stay. Here's what he had to say to me yesterday. I'll get your thoughts. Bradley Spence on yesterday's show. You can't stop this micro-mobility movement. It's here. It's here to stay. And cities are going to need to adapt to have more space and to have more rules uh, around these things. Our toughest job right now is keeping them in stock, and it's been soaring beyond our imagination. There's so many of these things being purchased every single day. It's definitely here to stay. Okay, the micro-mobility movement, as he called (laughs) it. So there are e-scooters, electric bikes, electric skateboards, electric unicycles. A lot of people have seen these. Uh, Yeah, do you agree with them that this is... This is here to stay. It's not a fad. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think um, this this is happening. People are already, you know, using these devices in great numbers. Um, but it's, it's up to us as municipalities to learn how they're using them and and find um, you know regulations that are going to provide a safe environment for them. Um, you know, I think one of the things it points to is is having a safe and connected active transportation network. So bike lanes that are connected and allow people to safely get around as separated from from, from vehicles um, and and that's I think points to the, the real need to um, continue to build out those those active transportation networks so that things like uh, e-scooters can be used safely right and there's an age limit for them right like you have to be a minimum age to use them what is the age 16, yeah, 16 yeah, right 16. Mm-hmm. you got to be 16 you must wear a helmet that's the law as well Correct. Right. Yeah. And what up now? And we went over this on yesterday's show. You don't need insurance, though, right? Like you don't need to have ICBC coverage. Uh, no, just just like riding a bike uh, doesn't require right. insurance. It's the same. They're treated the same, and and that is largely how we're treating them. Is is the same as as electric bikes. Yeah, and you can see why they're so popular. I mean, with the price of gas right now, so no stops at the gas station. You don't have to pay an ICBC bill either. So. You can understand why people would be looking at this as an alternative for sure. Do you think that there should be a requirement for insurance or maybe that's something that come in the future? 
Not at this point. Uh, I don't think uh, I'm not interested in, in introducing any kind of a barrier that, that might um, you know, dissuade somebody from trying out one of these things. Um, I think anything we can do to get people you know, onto different modes of transportation, whether it's an e-bike, an e-scooter, um, then we should be encouraging it. Um, you know, down, down the line, I think we, we can look at you know, different ways to regulate, but um, right now I think we should be encouraging yeah. it to as many people as we can. What would you say to people, counselor, who are listening to this and saying, wait a sec, I almost got blindsided by one of these things on the sidewalk the other day. I think they're a menace. I don't think they're a revolution at all. Like, what would you say to someone who's, who's worried or opposed to them? Well, I think it's a real concern. Obviously, if, if you're getting, um, you know, having close calls or, or running into somebody on one of these devices, um, you know, that's, that's why we have to look at enforcement and, um, and, and learn from this pilot project and, and see how, how prominent those types of collisions and, and close calls are, um, because obviously we have to, to address that for sure. Yeah, and what would your message be to people who are riding e-scooters? Follow the rules, right? Absolutely follow the rules. Um, you know, they are uh, a device that, that you're moving. Um, you, you can definitely be a hazard out there, and uh, so follow the rules just like you would, you know, riding a bike. Okay, sounds like you're not, you're not having any second thoughts about it at all. You're still you're still fully on board with this this pro this program. I'm certainly on board with yeah. this this pilot program, and I think there's a lot Good. that we are going to to learn from it, and, and that's why I like the approach of, uh, of treating it as a, a two year pilot program that we can 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 learn from to inform um, future right. uh, framework. Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very much. All right, Jordan, back there. He's a city councilor in the district of North Vancouver, and he certainly supports the electric scooters program in that municipality. All right, welcome back to the show, and let's talk about Canada's passport problems now. We've talked a lot about this on the show, people waiting in some cases for months trying to get a passport, even a simple renewal has been a a nightmare for some people. The hundreds of people sleeping outside passport offices desperate to get a passport as their travel dates approach. Why would anyone be required to sleep overnight on the street just to access a basic government service like getting a passport in this country? How did this happen? What is the plan to fix it? Let's discuss with the minister in charge now, Karina Gould, Federal Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, and she's responsible for the passport system. Minister, thank you for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, I'm very grateful to you for coming on because there are so many people who are concerned about the situation here. Can you explain to the listeners how this happened, why we got into this situation in the first place? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm equally concerned about the situation and, uh, you know, not pleased with it either. Um, You know, after two years um, of pandemic restrictions and particularly travel restrictions. Once those lifted, uh, there was a lot of people who understandably wanted to travel. And, um, you know, quite frankly, we got a big volume all at the same time, kind of between February and April, we continue to get um, a huge volume of applications each week. Um, And so we were receiving more volume than we have capacity to process. And so that's part of the challenge that we're facing. The other part of it is I heard in your introduction talking about renewals. Um, only about 15% of the applications that we're getting are actually simple renewals. 85% of them are for people who've never had a passport before, a Canadian passport, that is. 
So either for babies that were born over the past couple of years or children who, you know, they didn't get a passport because they didn't travel before the pandemic, um, new Canadians who are getting their Canadian passport for the first time, or actually a lot of adult Canadians who um, pre-pandemic didn't have the urge to travel, but I think after, you know, being kind of required to stay in Canada for the past couple of years now have the itch to get out. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's really what we're seeing. Okay, I think a lot of people can understand that there's a pent-up demand to travel again, but I think there's also concern why the government did not see this coming. Like, when you take a look at the number of passports that are being uh, processed right now, I mean, we are not even back to the pre-pandemic levels. I mean, we're still below where we were at before the pandemic. So how how is that a surge? You know, it's not really a surge if we're not back to where we were before. How come there was no plan to deal with this and anticipate it? Well, there was. There absolutely was. I mean, we started doesn't, to doesn't look hire like it. an additional... I, no, and I understand that. I completely understand that. Um, we hired an additional 600 people starting in January. Um, we... You know, we're trying to calibrate based on the passport applications that were made, you know, in 2019 and 2020. The way it works is that each year, uh, Immigration and Refugees and Citizenship Canada provides Service Canada with a forecast um, for that year. Um, You know, we were doing it based on those numbers, um, but there were just more people who applied than anticipated. Um, And the other part of it is that, you know, in previous years, um, passports were really predictable, right? We, you know, knew how many people were applying based on the number of new citizens, the number of babies born, um, you know, the number of people who needed renewals. Um, and they happened, you know, pretty consistently over a 12-month period. Um, we're talking about a big influx in just a couple of months. And so the best kind of analogy that I can provide is, you know, you're on the highway and it's rush hour. Um, you know, we're, we're in rush hour when it comes to passports. And, you know, that doesn't mean that it's acceptable by any stretch. You know, we're working day and night um, at the uh, government and Service Canada to, you know, to get these passports processed more quickly. But that's part of the challenge is, is the concentration well, of the volume in a couple of months. Right. Well, I guess the thing is, though, people know when rush hour is typically going to happen. It typically happens at the same time every day. So you plan for it. And I and I guess for most Canadians and probably I think the vast majority of people listening right now are just wondering why why this was not anticipated. Minister, let me play a couple of clips here for you from some of the people we've been talking to have been, been stuck in this nightmare. This is Marie Catherine Jean-Philippe, who uh, went to the passport office in Montreal three times sleeping outside. I'll play it for you and get your thoughts. I came here three times already. Three times, and I was turned back. There's people that have been waiting here since Friday. More than 72 hours sleeping outdoors, in the cold, in the rain, and still they're in line. And then oh, this is Avang Narjali, who spent 30 hours outside the passport office in Surrey recently with a young child. And here's what she had to say. We stayed here overnight um, and it's just been, it's been horrible. My back hurts, I'm shaking, uh, like I, I've been rained on, my daughter's freezing, I have to run into Walmart to change her every now and then. 
Okay, Minister, what do you say to these people? I mean, just the thought of, like, sleeping outside a passport office. This is a basic government service, and people are, like, freezing on the streets trying to get a passport. What do you say to them? Well, first of all, it it shouldn't happen, right? Um, You know, it's it's totally unacceptable that this is the experience that they're having. Um, You know, the Service Canada centres are supposed to be triaging um, folks, particularly those with small children, and bringing them into the office. They're supposed to be doing this for the elderly and those with mobility issues. So that's very concerning to hear that that's not happening. And I will completely reiterate that um, with uh, the Service Canada director out west because that's something that's been made very clear. Um, The challenge is that uh, Service Canada passport centres are... Uh, overwhelmed by the volume um, and the capacity to process, the people shouldn't be experiencing this. They should be given um, a ticket with a time so that they don't have to wait in line. Um, They are trying to triage people on an urgent basis, so those who have travel within 48 hours to make sure they don't miss their flights. Um, but they should be, you know, ensuring that people aren't just being turned away, that they're, you know, given um, an alternate time to come back or um, another venue through which to receive their service. So, um, yeah, it's it's very disappointing to hear this. Um, I, you know, it's it's not the first time, obviously, that I'm I'm hearing it, but I'll continue yeah. to reiterate these messages because um, it shouldn't be happening. Speaking to Federal Cabinet Minister Karina Gould, she's responsible for the passport service in Canada. We've talked a lot about this issue on the show, Minister, and I've spoken to senior officials who've told me here that they told the government months ago that, look, get ready. There is a surge of people traveling again. There is pent-up demand. You guys better be ready. I spoke to the chief operating officer formerly at Air Canada about this, the president of the union who represents security screeners at, at YVR Airport here in Vancouver. They all said the same thing. We told the government months ago that this was happening, that people are going to be looking for a passport. They're going to be looking to travel again. So it it just seems kind of shocking and extremely disappointing and unacceptable that the situation we're in now is before us, when I I think clearly the government should have known and should have anticipated that. How do you respond to that? Well, look, I, you know, if I could go back uh, six months and hire an additional 1,200 people, I would absolutely do that. Uh, what I would say, though, is that, you know, it's not just Canada that's experiencing this. I mean, this is really happening right across the world. It doesn't mean it's acceptable here, and we're throwing everything we have at the situation to try and fix it. And I'm working on that day and night as our Service Canada officials. But if you look at what's happening in countries like the UK, the US, Australia, Sweden, France, I mean, they're also experiencing extreme delays when it comes to passports um, and, you know, other areas when it comes to travel. So this isn't unique to Canada. That's cold comfort, I realize, for folks who are waiting in line for a passport. Um, But it is something that's happening right across the world. Um, But we are, you know, working really hard to hire additional people. Uh, We're in the process of bringing on another 600 We've reallocated internal resources. We are constantly trying to make changes internally to speed this up and process things faster um, and making sure that we have strategies that work for different regions in the country which are experiencing when, issues. 
When will it be, last question for you, Minister, when will this be fixed? I mean, we're going to see even more people starting to travel again as the summer months approach and the travel restrictions are being relaxed to a great degree. So it allows more people eligible to travel again. So for people right now are thinking like, oh, my God, I need a passport. What can you say to them? Like, when will this be fixed? You know, I I don't have a perfect answer for you because it's going to depend on the continued volume that we receive. Um, You know, things were getting a bit better a couple of weeks ago, and then we got another surge in applications. And so uh, we're trying uh, to constantly evolve and improve efficiencies. Um, So I I, I don't want to, you know, give a, um, a false answer here. All I can say is that you know, we're making a lot of internal changes to make this process more efficient, to streamline our processes and our policies, and to make it, you know, a much better experience than what people are facing right now, which is totally and completely unacceptable. Minister, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. No, thank you. I appreciate it as well. We're talking travel troubles on the show today. In the last hour, we spoke about the passport backlogs, people still sleeping outside of passport offices, desperate to get a passport as their travel dates approach. You heard my conversation there last hour with Karina Gould, the federal cabinet minister responsible for the passport service. And she says the government was taken by surprise here by a surge in passport applications. I think they should have seen it coming. They were warned there was going to be a big increase in new passport applications. Well, of course there are. And people are getting set to travel again. Passports, though, are not the only problem at the borders, at our airports, or the travel and tourism industry. How about the problems with the Arrive Can app? Anyone who has crossed the border knows that you need that app. It's meant to streamline movement of people across the border, but... There have been lots of problems with that, too. The ArriveCan app is still in place, still required, even though a lot of other COVID rules and restrictions have been dropped. Is it time to scrap the app? Got Richard Savage standing by with the Custom and Immigration Union. First, have a listen to this here. You're going to hear Conservative MP Michelle Ferrari speaking in the House of Commons about the troubles with this Arrive Can app. Have a listen to this. The VP of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce said, if the government of Canada has a plan for tourism, they've never shown it to us. Mark Weber of Customs and Immigration Union said his border agents are no longer agents, but instead have become IT consultants, and wait times have skyrocketed because of the inefficient Arrive Can app. He went on to say that they were never consulted on the app. No wonder our airports and land borders are a disaster and an embarrassment. Why would this government create a system without consulting the frontline workers who must implement it? Yeah, I think that's a good question and an even better one, I think. Is it time to just scrap that Arrive Can app? Let's discuss now with my guest, Richard Savage. Richard is the National Vice President of the Customs and Immigration Union. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Richard, thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. You bet. Thank you. So let's talk about this Arrive Can app, first of all. How does that work with, with your people, like the people in the front line, immigration officials? Do you, have you guys found that a lot of people are struggling with that app to, to use it, and you've got to, your people have to help them out? That, that's an understatement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, we have 
or like uh, our president Mark said, is that we seem to be becoming IT consultants. Um, everybody that comes up to the border, unless the app has been filled out perfectly, is going to require some form of assistance. Uh, as well as when we have our land borders, where you have our, you know tourists coming up from the United States who may not even be aware that the app exists and that they are required to do it. So it is significantly impacting our ability to process traffic in a uh, in a timely manner. Okay, this uh, came up in testimony recently in front of a House of Commons committee um, where the government had been saying, well, actually, the app is working well. The government had offered statistics saying that 99% of air travelers, 94% of land travelers had had successfully completed the app. And I know the president of your union, had just, you guys dispute that, right? Yeah, well... Where we dispute is where the app is being completed. So they are correct that after what we would call secondary, people after they've been assisted and helped with the app, with uh, the Arrive 10 app, that is where they're getting their numbers from. What the problem is, is depending on time of day, depending on location, you are getting anywhere from 40% of travelers having completed it. Um, and that remaining percentage to get to the CBSA numbers is being completed with the help of our officers which, as I pointed out, significantly affects the uh, processing time and just causes delays at the borders. Yeah, okay, so it's like 99% have got the app completed, but in a lot of cases it's with the help of immigration and customs officials. Yes, the app is supposed to be completed prior to your arrival in Canada, which would mean prior to you speaking to an officer prior to you uh, landing even at the airports. But that is not being done. It's being done after our intervention. Right. What are some of the more common problems you're seeing with the app? What are you hearing from your people? Some of the common ones are some things as simple as people making a mistake on their names. You know, if the mistake in the name doesn't meet the documentation that they provided, that's now going to cause problems. It's going to have to be redone. We also have problems with um, a lot of people, especially in the Lower Mainland, have anglicized names that may be on one document, but their their full name is on another one, so that's causing issues yeah. as well. Going through it as well, some of the questions, unless you're, you know, I understand the questions, but of course I've been in this business for 20 years. So some people don't understand what we mean by a right of entry, what is discretionary travel, Um the questions are kind of confusing, and if people choose the wrong one, they go down the wrong, I guess, the rabbit hole for the app, which then causes confusion when they arrive, which essentially means you have to have assistance to redo the whole thing. Speaking to Richard Savage, he's the Vice President, Customs and Immigration Union. In that clip we played there, it noted the MP noted that the, the president of your union said that your union had not been consulted about that app. Is that correct? Like this was kind of just sprung on you guys or did you get any advance notice of this, of this new app when they did roll it out in the first place? We were not consulted in uh, any way, shape or form. We have been warning them of these issues for the last, since they've implemented it, but we were not consulted. And it seems kind of a little counterintuitive to not go to the people who do the job to figure out how it can be done, how it can be streamlined. So we're quite disappointed in that. Right. And as, as you mentioned that, you know, it's almost like your people have turned into like IT consultants here to help people figure this app out. What kind of impact does that have on the job you're supposed to be doing? Like, I assume that when you're a customs and immigration official, you know, the job description doesn't include helping people fill out an app on their phone. Like, 
I mean, you guys so, have got more more important jobs to do, right? Our, our job is for the safety and security of Canadians, and this app is hampering yeah. our ability to do that. Um, it hampers our ability to search for drugs. It hampers our ability to search for contraband. Um, when all we're doing is staring at different technology screens, we can't even interact with the, with the traveler to use our training in, in indicators of what uh, somebody may or may not be lying. So, yes, it's definitely hampering our ability to, uh, to fulfill our main function, which is the safety and security of Canadians. Okay. Do you think that therefore Canadians are less safe and less secure because your people are wrangling with this app every day? Most definitely. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Like, so what, what could that mean? Like there could be more drugs coming in the country. There could be people getting into the country. Shouldn't be able to come in. Like what? When we, when we can't concentrate on the, on the, and say enforcement side of our job, all of those things are a possibility. Everything, everything increases exponentially if we are, Strictly acting as IT professionals for this or for the app. Yes. Do you think they should like? It's time now to to scrap this thing. I mean, this app collects it. It shows your vaccine status. It shows some personal information, and you know the government has justified it, saying like, "Look, we need this in order to monitor compliance, slow the spread of COVID nineteen." Like, I get all that, but they've already dropped like a lot of the. The, va- the vaccine mandates at, for travel, like a lot of these rules and regulations are being relaxed and dropped. Do you think the same thing should be done with this ArriveCan app, like scrap the app now? Well, um, as Mark has pointed out, is we're not public health experts. So yeah. to comment on that, what we can comment on is there's easier ways and quicker ways to get the information that the app requires. Um, most people now carry the vaccination status either in a, in a physical card or on their phone, and we feel that uh, that would be a much quicker and more efficient way to to check that. Yes. Oh, okay. So just have people, you know, show you their vaccine card or whatever on their phone or a, or a paper copy. That would that would yes, that would ex- ex- yeah. ex- expedite. Sorry, the uh, the process quite a bit. Right, right. Is there any indication now where we're at with this? Like, you guys have raised your concerns. Are you satisfied with the government's response? Do you feel like the government's listening to your concerns? We feel that they're listening. I know there is a there is supposed to be changes. Uh, we've been informed of not exactly what, but maybe some more streamlined changes to the app, which which may help the process. But. Um, it's a government policy uh, as it stands right now. I can't really comment on, on that. Yep. Okay, well, it's an issue we're following closely. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Okay, Richard Savage, National Vice President of the Customs and Immigration Union, talking about some of the troubles with the Arrive Can app. Let's talk about a hot issue in uh, Metro Vancouver right now, and that is the issue of amalgamation. And they did that in Toronto and Montreal. Toronto's uh, big time. And this goes back many years ago when Toronto was amalgamated with adjacent municipalities and suburbs, including like York, North York, Scarborough, Etobicoke, to create the city of Toronto, Montreal went through a similar process. Should they do the same thing in Vancouver, in Metro Vancouver? Check out what we have now in Metro. You got 23 separate local and municipal governments making up Metro Vancouver. Imagine all those services that are being duplicated 
among all those different municipalities. Would it make sense to amalgamate all those municipalities into one big city, just like they did in Toronto and Montreal, share those services? That sounds like a lot of people would be interested in doing that. In a new survey by Research Co. polling company, 51% of likely voters in Vancouver think it would be worthwhile to at least explore the idea of amalgamating with neighboring municipalities, just like they did in Toronto and Montreal. Let's discuss with my guest, Andrew Sancton now, political science professor, Western University. I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Andrew, thanks for coming on today. It's a pleasure to be here, Mike. Okay, what do you think of this idea? Do you think this is something that could start gaining some traction in, in Metro Vancouver, an, a, a movement to amalgamation? Well, I'm sure there are uh, some people, and there are going to be some people who think it's a, a good idea. Uh, it's sort of intuitively uh, think that way. Better to have one municipality than 20 or something. But uh, I do think it would be a, a bad idea. Um, I, I just want to uh, mention two things that you said about Montreal and Toronto. First of all, in Toronto, amalgamations happened, um, but there's uh, uh, still a couple of dozen municipalities, at least, depending on how you uh, 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 draw the boundaries, a couple of a dozen municipalities that are uh, in the metro Toronto area, the, what, sort of the equivalent of what is Metro Vancouver in, uh, in Vancouver. And in Montreal, they went through a big amalgamation uh, on the island of Montreal, and then uh, political pressure mounted, and they had referendums on a bunch of municipalities, about a dozen de-amalgamated. So Montreal isn't mm. amalgamated anymore, uh, and it's very decentralized. Uh, there's uh, uh, The city's got borough mayors, so there's about 30 mayors on the island of Montreal right now. So uh, okay. I would be careful to uh, use Toronto and Montreal as models. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the pros and cons of doing this. Like, you think it would be a bad idea. Why do you think it would be bad? Uh, well, it, it depends on the motivations. If people think it's going to save money, all yeah. the evidence is that in big cities, it certainly doesn't. Um, what really happens is that uh, wages and salaries uh, get leveled up to the highest the level in the in the the uh, highest municipality, the municipality that pays the most, and uh, that quickly wipes out any savings. In the areas where uh, uh, there might be savings from amalgamation, uh, the services are already amalgamated. And in Metro Vancouver, that would be sewer and water, and uh, of course you've got TransLink for transportation. So a lot of the things for which there really are economies of scale are um, are already amalgamated in uh, in Vancouver. Yeah, like so in Metro Vancouver, like water, sewage. I mean, TransLink, I guess, would be another good example, right? Yeah. Like transit yeah, services. Yeah. 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 Al- already amalgamated. What about policing? They, don't they save some money? Couldn't they save some money if they combined all those police forces? Um, yeah. Um, policing, I guess, in the Vancouver uh, situation would probably be the one where there'd be the most pressure uh, to amalgamate. Uh, again, I'm not sure that they uh, save uh, much much money, um, but I know uh, there have been studies that have suggested that's a, a good thing. And uh, even there, even if you thought that policing, amalgamating policing, was a, a would be better than the current setup, you could still have a regional police force uh, without having a uh, uh, an amalgamated municipality. 
Speaking to Andrew Sancton, Western University, about the idea of amalgamating municipalities in Metro Vancouver. Do you think, I was kind of surprised to see there was majority support. It would appear a very narrow majority, but a majority nonetheless in this poll saying like, people are saying like, yeah, maybe we should take a look at this. I have a feeling it would be a hard sell for a lot of people in some communities who maybe just like it exactly the way it is. Don't touch it. Yeah, as I understand it, that poll was taken in the city of Vancouver. I don't think you'd get the same results in uh, uh, Surrey and uh, yeah. White Rock and, uh, you know, I don't West Vancouver and all those places. Yeah, I got. I, I have a feeling you're right. That in some of these other municipalities, they would like to remain their own municipality. Why do you yeah. think people would feel that way? Well, because I think uh, in uh, suburban areas, especially in smaller suburban areas, people have a close attachment to their uh, municipality. Uh, they uh, think the services are either uh, superior to what's provided in the central city or uh, they, they think their tax rates are uh, lower and, um, and they want to preserve that. And a lot of homeowners are just um, uh, nervous about uh change uh if if your home especially in vancouver is your most uh valuable investment and somebody comes along and saying we're going to change the municipality that you're going to be in and uh you're going to be subject to rules set a long a long way away from your your own uh city hall uh i think people are would be pretty nervous about that yeah and do you think that you know we have a very low voter turnout when it comes to municipal elections, but I wonder if people might get even more disengaged if we amalgamate it into one giant city. Like, do you think when people have their own municipality, they're a little bit more locally connected to local issues? Uh, they are sometimes. Um, yeah. Sometimes they're uh, just uh, complacent about how things are, are relatively happy, so they don't, they don't bother going uh, to the polls. Uh, after the uh, uh, amalgamation in Toronto, uh, the voting turnout went way up because people got very engaged in the amalgamation debate. And I'm sure they would in Vancouver if it, if it got serious. Uh, um, so uh, the turnout was very high in the first megacity election. But then it it went started going down again, and it's pretty much the way it uh, was before. I wonder if... Um, um, you know, yeah, go ahead. Finish your thought. Well, there. I was just going to say on the subject of voting, the way yeah. the law is set up in Vancouver, um, any of these amalgamations would have to be, or in British Columbia, I should say, any of these um, amalgamations would have to be approved in a referendum. And um, mm. uh, that would really uh, get people uh, going, I think. And that would be a reason why it would be difficult. Another reason why it would be difficult to carry it out in Vancouver. I wonder if... Um people in the city of Vancouver proper might be more inclined to say, sure, let's amalgamate. And, but maybe other, other municipalities, not so much, especially if they have to share, share costs of things like policing, which might be disproportionately higher in cities with more crime. Like maybe you could look at a city like Vancouver and say people in white rock or elsewhere and say, well, why should I, why should my tax dollars go to help fight crime in downtown Vancouver where most of the problems are? Yeah, that would absolutely be part of the dynamic. People in the central city thinking the suburbs should uh, uh, help pay their bigger uh, cost. But, of course, Vancouver, the city of Vancouver would have a, uh, 
a higher tax base on a per capita uh, basis anyway. But yeah. the other thing that on, working on the, from the other side would be, and this is certainly the, was the case in uh, at Toronto, uh, people who live in the central part of the city, which is pretty much the city of Vancouver, um, might get very nervous about the idea that they could be outvoted by a whole bunch of people living out oh. in the suburbs because yeah. people in the suburbs have different interests uh, than people living in the central part of the city. And a lot of those relate to uh, uh, roads and uh, uh, commuting uh, issues. All right. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome, Mike.